Thank you for connecting to the Bethany Chapel Sermon Link. Our prayer is that you will find the following sermon helpful and inspiring for your spiritual journey. If you are a visitor to this resource, or if you've not attended our church, we would love to meet you in person. Our vision at Bethany Chapel is opening doors to God's truth and love. God bless you as you listen. Well, we're continuing today our series, uh, AD 30, which is basically the life of Christ. And we're trying to do it chronologically, but we're dependent upon people who've written chronological Bibles. Uh, Sometimes the gospel writers did not write chronologically. They often wrote thematically, grouped things together. So when you're reading a gospel, you may assume that it is, you know, in order of time. It often isn't. And so we're dependent upon scholars who've tried to piece together the three years of Jesus' ministry. And so as best as we can, we're doing that, going through a chronological sort of story of Jesus' Life. And I've entitled our message today, When Upside Down is Right. If you've raised kids, or if you've ever been one, and I would suspect that would include all of us, you have some experience maybe with theme parks, favorite place for children, not necessarily for parents. When you're young, risk and danger are sort of adult words. You don't really think about those things. You aren't worried that the park cut back on maintenance to save money, You don't yet know when you're young that carnivals, fairs, and theme parks are almost entirely unregulated by the governments that house them. You just think everything's going to be okay because 10,000 people before you lived through it. And so you go to theme parks thinking that bad things would never happen to you at a theme park and nothing could be further from the truth. In 1998, Camp Snoopy, which is in the Mall of America, which is about 70 miles from where we spent a lot of our adult lives and raised our children, Camp Snoopy, 1998, five riders were suspended upside down as one of their rides shut down for an hour. Now, I've watched, you know, the kind of movies I watch, you know, spy movies, CIA movies, and when they're torturing somebody, forgive me, I'm not recommending those movies to you, but, you know, they'll put them upside down, and you you can only live so long upside down. Eventually, you die, bad things happen in your brain. 1998, five people upside down for an hour. 2005, Camp Snoopy again. You'd think people would stop going there, but it's the Mall of America. The Mighty Axe riders were suspended upside down again, and so as as this happened, there was money like raining from the skies, people's pockets are going inside out, changes coming down. Eventually, they got that fixed, and you'll be happy to know that the $4.80 ticket was refunded. I think I'd be asking my lawyer for a lot more. In 2007, in Hot Springs, Arkansas, Arkansas sounds like a place for theme parks that break down, an animal touched two different power lines at the same time, which, by the way, you're not supposed to do. If you didn't know that, never do that. Touched two power lines simultaneously. I don't have pictures of that animal. I searched for a long time. And it caused a power outage. Several rides stalled. One was a roller coaster. That roller coaster was 150 feet high. I believe the people were upside down in one of the turns for 32 minutes. Now, the interesting thing about 150 feet off the ground is when you call the the firemen to come and get you, their ladders are 100 feet. And the roller coaster is 150 feet. For those of you who are math majors, you'll notice there's a 50-foot difference there. A backup generator, thankfully, was fired up and allowed them to continue In this case, it was more than $4.80 that was refunded. They were given a free season pass. 
Now, what I would ask you, is that really a good deal? Now, I've got a chance to go back for the rest of the season to be suspended upside down. Being upside down is unnatural. That situation would scare me to death. I'll go on roller coasters, I'll go on some of these rides to keep my kids happy when they were that age, but the reality is, I, when, when I have to be you know, strapped in like that, and I'm gonna be upside down, I'm just gonna wonder if it's really gonna hold me. Something's gonna go wrong. It would scare me to death to be 30 minutes in the air, 150 feet off the ground, built by the lowest bidder, in an unregulated industry, upside down. Something doesn't sound right about that. Would you agree? Now, I know what you're thinking. This is Canada. Stuff like this doesn't happen in Canada. We're better. This summer, Canada's Wonderland, July 23rd, 2021, upside down. Upside down is unnatural to us. Totally unnatural. And yet Jesus tells us to live by a set of values that feel that way to us. If we really are living them out, they are unnatural. They never will feel natural because they don't fit into the world around us. It's never going to feel right. Those values are never going to dominate the culture. They might seem a little natural to you because you've heard about it in church your whole life, if you've been a Christian for much of your life, but they're upside down and right the way we're supposed to live. And I want to read about some of those in Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5 is the beginning of what we call the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' probably most famous sermon. I don't think it was one sermon. It probably is a compilation of a few days of teaching. I'll talk about that in a moment. It probably wasn't given at one time. Matthew chapter 5, on page 3, if you're looking at your New Testament in the Pew Bibles there. When Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on the mountain, and after he sat down, his disciples came to him. He opened his mouth and began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the gentle, or the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. Blessed are those who have been persecuted for the sake of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You, when you live this way, you're the salt of the earth. But if the salt has become tasteless, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. You, when when you live this way, when you incorporate these values into your life, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. So let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who's in heaven. Now the background on the Sermon on the Mount, this is still early in Jesus' ministry. Again, we're trying to follow a chronology here. It's still fairly early in Jesus' ministry. He is no secret at this point. 
Uh, he has performed many miracles. People have observed those miracles. They've gotten on you know, Facebook and Snapchat. They've tweeted it out. Jesus is now drawing great crowds. His popularity is rising with those who are following him, but there's also a growing skepticism. And so a couple of passages that I skipped that I'm not preaching on, he just has called his disciples, by the way, but right before that, or right around that time with his disciples, they're starting to do some things that were disapproved of by the religious leaders. He's, you know, spent some time with Matthew and some of Matthew's friends right before he called Matthew. That wasn't okay. He healed somebody on the Sabbath. And working on the Sabbath was one of the key issues that Jewish leaders were against. They took that so seriously to hold the Sabbath sacred. And so Jesus even doing in the good on the Sabbath became incredibly controversial to the point that they're already thinking of doing some nasty things to him. And this is early in his ministry. So now the 12 are together. This is probably one of the first teachings we have where we know all 12 apostles have probably been called at this time. And it seems that when he goes up into the mount for the Sermon on the Mount, it might not just be the 12. It says his disciples are meeting him up there. But he has a broader group of disciples. So separate apostles, the 12, from disciples, a broader group of people who are probably following Jesus at this point. So he could have... You know, he could have 50, 100, 200 people with him. They're all disciples. His apostles are there for sure. By the time you get to the end of chapter 7, you'll see that large crowds are following him. So it's very likely, and this is why scholars believe this didn't happen in one setting, one sermon, it's very likely that this is a compilation of teachings over a few days, and he starts out with his disciples, and by the time it's done, there's a mass gathering on that mountain. So these are probably the highlights. We don't have, you know, full manuscripts of Jesus' sermons. We often have just the cliff notes. We have highlights. And in this, he describes the values and ethics of God's kingdom. Now, the term God's kingdom is not an easy thing to sort of pin down. And even theologians debate what that means. And the best way I can describe that is it's God's reign on earth. And when you're thinking of the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God, I want you to think of it this way. It's here because the king is here, but it's not yet here. It's here because the king is here, but it's not yet here in its full consummation. And let me explain why this is confusing a little bit to us and how an Old Testament person would have looked forward to this. And I think I've said this before, and I don't want to belabor this point, but it's really important you understand. You look at the Bible with full knowledge of human history and God's salvation history. In the Old Testament, when they looked forward to the kingdom of God, it would be like you're looking west into the mountains, how many peaks can you see all the way to the west coast? You only see the first one. You see the first mountain. If you're going to Banff, or if you, you see the first set of mountains there, those majestic mountains. You see that. You can't see what's beyond that. You don't see the next range. You don't see the next peaks. That's what it was like looking forward to the kingdom of God from an Old Testament standpoint. The prophets looked forward and saw a time when Messiah would come, and then Messiah would rule the world, and the end times would come. It was all sort of one thing. Messiah would come, he'd bring in the eternal kingdom, he'd reign on earth. An Old Testament believer sees that one mountain peak. All right, but we're on the other side. We're on the West Coast. We see all of the peaks. We see now that Jesus came, he left, and he's coming back. We see the kingdom as here because the king is here, but not yet 
because it hasn't come in its full consummation. So that's a good way to look at this now when we see the kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven. It's here, but it's not yet here. So Jesus is talking about the values of that kingdom, which he as the king is bringing to all of his followers. Now, it's very hard to sort of preach the Sermon on the Mount, the the Beatitudes, for this reason. Number one, we're not sure what some of them exactly mean. There's the, you know, word meanings are fairly elastic. When you look up a word in the dictionary, you can have four or five meanings sometimes. Same thing with some of these terms. They're fairly broad at times. So people in my position have to make a choice about which, what we think he meant. All right, so that's one issue. The other issue is it's a little bit of a shotgun approach. Jesus gives us like, you know, a bunch of them. And they're very different from each other. And so it's, you can either preach a week on each one and make it a two-month series, or you can kind of cover it all at once, which feels like a little bit of a shotgun approach. So I've tried to look at them this way. Those that relate to the inner self and those that relate to how we respond to external situations. So first, Jesus commands upside-down attitudes about self, sort of our inner life. These verses contain what's called the Beatitudes. That word is translated blessed, It's the Greek word makaria. It's used in secular literature of the the, um, Isle of Cyprus, which was called the Happy Island, because the Greeks viewed it as so perfect that no one would ever leave its shores. If you were on Cyprus, the Greeks said this is like the best place in the world. You can have the perfectly happy life there. That's the word Jesus uses of the blessedness that comes when we do these things, when we have these right attitudes about self. So it's not about physical prosperity, but it referred to sort of a self-contained and untouchable joy which was independent of circumstance. It's like when you are blessed, nothing touches your life. No matter what's going on, you have this sense of joy in your life. Here, it seems to infer divine approval. You know, blessed is the person who does this for they're going to get some reward. So it infers some sort of divine approval. Each sentence offers a spiritual reward. The way I sort of look at this, and again, in broad terms, to me, to us, the blessed person is the person that Jesus is defining as really getting ahead in life. This is the successful person. This is the truly rich person. This is the truly joyful person in God's eyes problem is he gives us a list of qualities that go against every natural inclination that we have to experience that. So again, I'm going to do two things here. We're going to summarize them under two headings, the qualities related to self or the internal person and the qualities related to others, our responses to the external. First one, as it relates to self, is needy for God. Needy for God. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now, Jesus had a couple of options here with word choice. There was at least two primary words used for poor people in that culture. One of them was a word like penes. Penes, it's a person who works for a living. They're not in abject poverty. I would sort of call it the lower middle class in Jesus' day. They're not rich, but they're not poor. They're not destitute. They don't have any extras. You know, if they're going on vacation once or twice a year, it's the cheap vacation. That was a part of Jesus' culture. There were a lot of people in that situation. But he didn't choose that word. He chose the word tokas. That's the person who has nothing. 
That is the person who may be a beggar. That's the person who is destitute. Now, what's interesting about this, when you look at the culture of Jesus' day, if you saw somebody who was begging or who was that poor, you would assume that they had done something wrong, they'd incurred God's disfavor, they're under God's punishment, because they sort of believed in, in Jesus' day, they sort of had a health and wealth gospel mentality, that if you're obeying God, he's going to give you a lot of good stuff. And they took that from some of the Old Testament promises to the nation, and they personalized it and thought, hey, if I'm good, God's going to bless me. Everything's going to turn up roses. So if you were really poor in Jesus' day, it was viewed as though, hey, you haven't been very good to God, and God's not being very good to you, because you get what you deserve in this life, was the thinking. So when Jesus uses tokas, blessed are the poor in spirit, he's using a term that wouldn't be popular with religious people, because they didn't want to be poor. If you're poor, it means God's not blessing you. But a desperate person, a person who's truly poor, is, is more open to God. They're more open to dependence on God. A really, really poor person never develops a sense of self-sufficiency. They never look at their RSP and their RSP and, and or if you're in the States, your 401K and your IRA, they never look at those things and say, hey, it's gonna be great. A poor person doesn't have those things. A poor person never develops a sense of self-sufficiency. They don't have a real estate portfolio and a big bank account. They're always on the edge and God wants us there spiritually. No matter what we achieve in life, no matter what wealth we have in life, when it comes to our spiritual relationship with God, he always wants us to feel a little destitute, like, you know what? I need God. Even on the other side of a million dollars, I need God. No matter what comes into my life that's good, I am desperate for God because that's the most important part of my life. So as Jesus' followers, this spiritual poverty is never to leave us. That's a little upside down. Because for us, the more we develop some self-sufficiency in our life, the more we just tend to think we need God less. We can't help it. The more we can take care of ourselves, the less we feel we need God. The second inner quality, he wants us to be tearful about sin. Blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, I could put all of us in tears here with the right story, the right movie, the right stimuli, and pastors do it all the time. We don't do it to manipulate anything. There are just some things that really touch our hearts. We, we all cry at certain things. If we were to you know, say, we're just gonna stop right now and show the notebook, well, number one, we wouldn't get out of here until three o'clock, but the notebook, you know, this wonderful story about this old couple and the woman has a degenerative brain disease and how this man sort of wrote their story and keeps trying to read it to her every day to bring her back to understand that he loves her and he's been with her. And I am not necessarily a huge fan of sappy movies at that level, but if I watch The Notebook, I'm going to be a mess. In fact, I probably want to watch The Notebook without my wife there because I don't want her to see that I'm that able to cry. Dances with Wolves, you know, just a heart-wrenching movie, and then the two of them, you know, this, this army command, or this, you know, soldier who's out in the middle of the plains in, in the U.S., and then he falls in love with this gal who was taken by the native tribe and, and raised with them, and, and, and they fall in love. I mean, that's just, I mean, if you can't cry at that, you can't cry. For me, it's Rocky. I mean... If you can't cry at Rocky, you haven't lived. 
Or Rambo at the end where the soldier clings to his commander's leg and just wants to be loved and accepted. I mean, that's, that's a tearjerker for certain broken segments of the male population. Yesterday, I watched a movie. I probably can't give it the five-star approval, so I won't give you the name, but it's a woman, and you know, she's in Scotland. She's sort of messed up as a young person. She's got two kids. Well, she's still a teenager, and, and she's had a rough life. She's been in jail for, I believe, some theft, and, and she's got this incredible vocal talent, though. She wants to be a country music singer. She wants to go you know, to Nashville, and she wants to try out there, and it was her journey, and in the middle of that journey, as she began to realize her dream, I mean, I had tears streaming down my face. I thought I was in full-fledged menopause. Dee Dee came home. There's tissues wadded up and thrown all over my, my man cave. I'm in the corner in the fetal position. Parts of the story are true. Others are artistic license. Things grab our hearts. And Jesus says there are things that should continue to grab our hearts no matter what in our lives. Do we cry about things that we should cry about? In Luke 19, we see Jesus ready to enter Jerusalem in that last week, and he comes around the corner. He sees the city below him. I believe he's coming from Bethany, Mount of Olives area, something like that. And he starts crying. He's with his disciples, and they, oh, Jerusalem. He said, I wish I could gather you like a hen gathers her chicks. I wish I could protect you. I wish you saw me for who I am because you're rejecting me. I know what's coming. And he cried for the lostness of his own people. And I don't think that's what blessed are those who mourn is about. I think it's about this. I believe this is about our recognition of the deficit between who we are and who we should be. I think it's about the deficit uh, in our lives between who we are and who we should be. You know, we come to faith in Jesus, we make some progress, and then we sort of stop changing. And we're okay with that. We sort of have a truce with our conscience that, you know, we're better than we used to be, but there's certain things that we can kind of hang on to and think, you know what, it's not that big of a deal. We're good enough. And we lose the sensitivity of the Holy Spirit in our lives that wants us to be really like Jesus. Blessed are those who mourn. They cry over the things that are in their lives that still shouldn't be. The third, restrained though empowered. Blessed are the meek, or blessed are the gentle, for they shall inherit the earth. In his book, Humilitas, Pastor John Dixon illustrates the beauty of humility in the life of Sir Edmund Hillary. In 1953, Hillary conquered Mount Everest with his Sherpa friend and guide, Tenzin Norgay. Consequently, in the same year, Hillary was knighted. In 1985, he was made New Zealand's highest commissioner to India, Nepal, and Bangladesh. In 1995, he received the British realm's highest award, the Order of the, I want to say, it looks like Gator, but it could be Guitar, membership of which is limited to just 24 individuals. But despite Hillary's achievements and rewards, he maintained a humble outlook and a readiness to serve others. And here's a story that illustrates this man's humility. On one of his many trips back to the Himalayas, he was spotted by a group of tourists, climbers. They begged for a photo with the great man, and Hillary obliged. They handed him an ice pick so he'd look the part, and they set up for the photograph, and then another climber passed the group, didn't realize that, you know, that Edmund Hillary is in the middle of the picture. They strolled up to Hillary saying, excuse me, that's not how you hold an ice pick. Let me show you. 
Everyone stood around in amazed silence as Hillary thanked the man, let him adjust the pick, and happily went on with the photograph. And it didn't, experience, it didn't matter how experienced that other climber was. His greatness was diminished by this intrusive presumption. We are repelled by pride. Edmund Hillary's greatness was enhanced by his humility. I think even in this world where people are shooting for the top of the corporate ladder, they're shooting to climb the mountain of success, people still respect when they see selflessness in others. When people have power, but they don't act like it. They maintain a sense of restraint. They don't abuse their power. Aristotle describes this virtue as kind of the happy medium between too much and too little anger. I don't think that fits as well here. It was used of powerful yet domesticated animals. I think that fits very well. An animal that could trample something and yet it's, it's, it's restrained, it's controlled. It's power under control. It's a description of us when we achieve worldly stature, but we don't act like it. We don't act like we're anything special, even when we may be in this world's eyes. It's humility. Fourth, ethically consistent, the pure in heart. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. I love this concept, and I think it's probably my greatest challenge. I would guess it might be your greatest challenge. Religious systems, which many of us have been a part of since we were little, they create external ethical conformity. You know, you sort of get in there, you learn the rules. Okay, there's certain things Jesus wants us to do. There's certain things he wants us not to do. And we start changing. And we stop doing as many bad things as we used to do. Those sort of external behaviors are somewhat controlled, but we still think about it. Our heart isn't necessarily fully changed. I think that's what this word is about is really being pure in heart from the inside out where it's not just our external actions that changed, but our impulses to do those things. Greek word is katharos. It's used of grain that's been sort of sifted and doesn't have any chaff in it anymore. It's used of clothes once they're cleaned. I believe that this katharos happens when our actions and our attitudes and our motives sort of all line up. The outside self and the inside self perfectly match. We're pure in heart. Hard to live. Jesus commands these upside-down attitudes about self. You can see them here. We're needy for God. We're tearful about sin. We're restrained, though empowered. We're ethically consistent. These are upside-down values. We don't typically stay this way because they're counterculture. They're counter to our human natures. And then he describes... He commands some upside-down responses to the broken world around us. So I then tried to package the ones that seem to be responses to what happens to us, to the external side of our lives. Create justice, show mercy, make peace, suffer for the cause. Create justice. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Now, here's the problem with this one, and I'm just going to share. This is what every, everyone who is studying this would have to answer, and I answered it a certain way. I may not be right. But righteousness, the root word for righteousness, can go down the path of personal righteousness, like blessed are those who, who want to be better, who want to be more righteous, or it can go down the justice path because the root word is the same. And so it can be either one. Because the first part was about personal righteousness, I think there's a very good chance that Jesus is referring to justice in the world. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for, for justice, that element of righteousness. 
And if Jesus is bringing his kingdom to earth, one of the things that would be accompanied by, you see it, you know, as Jesus announced his kingdom is this, this realm of fairness that will happen for all people. You know, prisoners will be freed and people will be healed and righteousness will reign on earth. That's, that's a reflection of God in all of us. The echoes of God's justice echo in every human heart. And I know we're going through a great, you know, sort of justice movement in the world, some of which I agree with, some of which I don't agree with. I think sometimes it's just displacing one form of racism for another. I don't think it's rooted in the Bible. Sometimes I don't think it's intellectually defensible. I will preach on that sometime when my bank account is big enough for me to be fired. But that desire for justice, which may be at times misplaced and may miss the mark by creating other forms of racism to solve one generation's racism, the desire for justice comes from the image of God in all of us. It may not be biblically informed at times, but it is coming from the image of God. That's what's echoing through human hearts, even human hearts that aren't redeemed, because justice is something we all want. People are each a reflection of God's image. Jesus' followers are at the front of the line all over the world, and they have been throughout history saying, the image of God should be valued in everybody who carries it. The image of God should be valued at the point of conception in the unborn. That should not be debatable among Christians. I'm not talking about the politics of it. I'm saying the image of God is in the unborn at the point of conception. And we should care. The image of God is in every handicapped person in the womb when we're making decisions about elective abortions because it might not be a perfect child. The image of God is there to be destroyed or to have as much of a life as God would allow. Christians, should care about that. The image of God is in the aging, when we have less usefulness to society, but we carry the image of God, and you are being forgotten, and you may be losing capacity to the point that in some Western societies, we may be happy to save some medical money and just let you go a little sooner. We should care about that, because we believe the image of God has incredible value. We care about justice. The image of God is in those with mental health challenges. The image of God is in the issue of fair sentencing guidelines for criminals where one group should not be facing greater sentences than another because of maybe some biases that we have. The image of God should be in our views and our treatment of those who look differently than us. For Christians, there's just no room for racism because the image of God is equally in all people. The image of God is in those trapped in sex trafficking and human slavery around the world. It numbers that you would not believe if I told you what they were. And Christians are at the forefront of rescuing people in those situations. Why? Because they care about the image of God in others. The image of God is in those who suffer at the hands of tyrants who wield power for evil and not for good. And so we should care about just governments around the world. We should care. 
Because where there are unjust governments, there are tens of thousands and hundreds of thousands of people experiencing genocide typically every year in this world. And we should care about politicians, above everybody, because we're the conscience of the world that the image of God matters. The image of God is in those where genocide takes place, yet those people live over soil without gold or oil or rare earth metals, so we don't care as much. We'll go to war over oil, but we don't go to war because a despot is massacring hundreds of thousands of people. The image of God is in every person who enters this world, who enters a mother's womb, and we should care. Blessed are those who care about justice. Blessed are those who show mercy, the merciful. Typically, we show mercy when we have the authority to exact justice and we hold back. We give something, something to somebody that they don't deserve. I'm going to have to really ratchet up the time here. I apologize. The image of God, I'm sorry, the Blessed are those who are the peacemakers, who make peace. We make peace when we've been wronged, yet our desire is to stop the cycle of wrong. We don't want to hit back. We don't want revenge. We give up some of our rights to justice, or we leave it up to God and society, and we remove ourselves so that we're not stained by the cycle of hatred. We become peacemakers. Blessed are those who suffer for the cause. We suffer for the cause when we give our lives to God's cause and we're attacked and destroyed by the very people we serve or when we live in hostile places to God and his word and we choose to serve him regardless of the consequences. Today, I believe the last century was the bloodiest century for persecution in the history of humanity. And didn't we think, you know, this was only 20 years ago when we lived back in that century, didn't we think we had arrived as people how modernity had made us so civilized. Yet around the world, governments and despots are killing more people than ever in the history of Christianity. To respond to these pressures the way Jesus success, uh, suggests is to live upside down. We're willing to pay a price for our faith. We're willing to show mercy when it's not natural. It's not natural to do any of the things mentioned in this list, but they collectively reflect a life that God considers blessed. If you can live this way, on the inside and the outside, you're reflecting the reign of Jesus, the king who's come, not yet in a full consummation, but the king who is here, he's brought his values, and we're living the truly rich, joyful, successful life. Those aren't the values of the culture. And Jesus says we do this for two reasons. It's the rewarding life, Blessed are those for, you know, then they're going to get something, they'll see God, etc. There, there's a reward there, but also, according to Jesus, it's the gospel we live as opposed to the gospel we tell. He, after the Beatitudes, he starts with, you know, you're the salt of the earth. When, when you live this way, that, that's how the world sees the difference. You're the light of the world. When you live this way, that's how the world knows that, that Jesus' followers are different. This was originally an ESPN article. It's a great story. High school football is big in the U.S. That would be equivalent to your hockey up here. But I suppose there's no place where it's bigger than in Texas because everything's bigger in Texas. I was just there. Those Texans. Friday nights in Texas are legend. The fans scream, the stands are packed, cheerleaders with pom-poms jump and sway to the beat of the school band. 
Parents yell encouragement, mostly. Moms turn their eyes away when their little boys are crunched by the bullies on the other team who didn't really have to hit them that hard. And everyone joins in the chants and stomps their feet on the metal stands until you're sure they're going to collapse. It'll be like a theme park. That's the frenzy of Texas high school football. But there's a football team in Texas that's a little different. When they play on Friday night, their stands are empty. No band, no cheerleaders, no massive parents or townsfolk wearing the school colors and waving banners. They take the field without anyone cheering them on. When they get a first down, there's no deafening surge from the stands when they score a touchdown, which rarely happens. There's no wild celebration. Just individual shouts of satisfaction that come from the 14 players and their coach and the 20 or so people that are sitting on the side of the field. All of it seems hollow and muffled in contrast to the tidal wave of roars and drums and chants that come from the opposing side. See, this team that has no fans, they're, they're the tornadoes of the Gainesville State School, a fenced maximum security facility of the Texas Youth Commission. The young men who go to Gainesville State are there because they've made some major mistakes in their lives. But the players who are on the team are there because they've worked hard, they've disciplined themselves to meet the criteria that gives them the privilege to leave the facility and play football on Friday nights. It's always an away game. Nobody comes to their field. It's always a home game for the opponents. And it's almost always a loss for these kids. They don't have a weight program, training equipment, high-paid coaches. They don't have a large pool of players to draw from. The school has 275 boys. Many are too old or too young or can't and don't meet the criteria to play. And they don't have the support of a town and a mass of parents and family, reporters and bands and cheerleaders. That is, until November 7th, something changed when they played Grapevine Faith Christian School. The way the Gainesville coach, Mark Williams, recounted it for me, it went something like this. Earlier in the week, he'd received a call from Faith Christian coach Chris Hogan asking him if it would be okay if Faith formed a spirit line for his team when they ran on the field. Mark said, sure, that'd be a real encouragement to the kids. He thought that the line would consist of a couple of the JV cheerleaders, but when they took the field, there were 100 people in it. It stretched to the 40-yard line, filled with faith parents, fans, and varsity cheerleaders, complete with a banner at the end for them to burst through the red, go tornadoes. Then those parents and fans sat in the stands behind the Gainesville players, and when the tornadoes broke the huddle and went up to the line, they, they could hear people cheering for them by name. When they got a first down, their fans erupted. See, Coach Hogan had sent an email out to the Faith Christian family asking them to consider doing something kind for these young men, many who don't know what it meant to have a mom and dad who cared, many who felt the world was against them, not for them. So Hogan asked that they simply send a message that these boys were just as valuable as any other person on earth. So half of the Faith Christian fans were now sitting on the visitor's side of the field cheering for the team playing against their own children. They're cheering against their own sons. Cheering for a team decked out in old uniforms and helmets. Cheering for boys who wouldn't go home that night and have a smiling dad slap him on the back and feel his mom put her arms around him and say, I'm so proud of you. Cheering for the underdog. Though the score was familiar, down 33 to nothing at halftime, this was a Friday night like no other for the Tornadoes. In the locker room, the players were confused. Why are they cheering for us, coach? Because, men, they want to encourage you. They want you to know that they care about you, that you have value. Coach Williams said the boys were stunned. For many of these kids, it was the first time anyone had shown them so visibly unconditional love. 
Williams then encouraged them to set a goal for the second half, to score a touchdown. And when they took the field again with their fans cheering them on, they did. Everything started to click in the second half. Our passes started to click. Our sweeps and counters started to click. And they did score two touchdowns, and the fans went wild. I asked Coach Williams what the bus ride was like on the way home. He laughed and told me they were all asleep. Their bellies were full. Because after the game, the parents brought a whole bunch of food over to the guys. Hamburgers, fries, candy, sodas, and included in the meal sack was a Bible, letter of encouragement from a faith Christian player. Then he said they formed a line for us out to the bus. Parents patted them on the back and said, nice game. Looking forward to see you guys next time. Phone went dead at this point. I think Coach Williams was choking back some tears, and so was I. I asked him one final question. If you could tell other people one thing about your kids, what would it be? And he said, don't be scared of them. Treat them with respect. They've made some mistakes, but they're trying their best to turn their lives around. Give them a shot. As they left the field that night, Coach Williams grabbed Coach Hogan and said to him, you'll never know what your people did for these kids tonight. You'll never, ever know. When the world looks at a Christian, the number one thing they should see is what was shown on a high school football field last fall in Texas. Jesus said, let your light shine among men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Jesus hasn't come back yet. It's quite late. But the kingdom of God was there that night. That's the kingdom of heaven. It was upside down, big time. You're cheering for the wrong team. Parents cheering for the wrong team. It it was all wrong. But it was so right because it embodied the values of Jesus. And it made what we believe attractive to a world that is skeptical because people don't see people act that way. They're truly transformed in a situation like that. So three quick questions, and I mean, I'm just reading them. I'm done talking. Sorry about the length of this sermon. Am I living out the values of Jesus or just fitting comfortably into the world around me? If you never feel like you're upside down in this world, you're probably not. That's not a good thing. Second, when was the last time I know that I was noticeably salt and light? Where I was involved in something that It was obvious. It was upside down and people could see it. And when is the next time? Has God prompted you in your life to be involved in something, to show up, to get involved in somebody's life, to do something, and you just maybe haven't stepped out? When we live out these values, the light of Jesus shines through us. It's upside down, but that's how they know it's God's kingdom. God, we thank you for your word. As Jesus preached this sermon, I'm sure that he was saying a lot of things that didn't fit into the culture of his day, and they don't really fit anymore into our culture today. They probably do for people here who've maybe been in church their whole lives. It kind of makes sense. But but when the world really sees this, it recognizes that there's something different about people who live this way. 
And I pray that you would help us to look deep into our lives and make sure that we are really reflecting what you really are trying to do in us and that we're really changing, that we're living out not just our cultural Christianity, but the values of Jesus stated 2,000 years ago. In whose name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this sermon. We hope you found it connected you to the God of truth and love who we worship and serve at Bethany Chapel. If you have any questions or want to connect to any of our pastors, please go to our Bethany Chapel app and choose Connect or go online to bethanychapel.com and click Come. Thanks again and God bless you.